Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to go, uh, go ahead and jump on in here. I'm not an expert, nor especially well-read in the area of toxic masculinity. Been trying to get a little bit more of a sense of that. I, I hear it spoken of quite a bit, and I'm sure it means something a little different in common parlance than it does in the academic realm. But I think, regardless of anything else, that controversy surrounding this notion can give us the opportunity to address some of the most pressing issues of our day. And so that particularly is my interest, to be able to look at it more from a philosophical standpoint. Again, not so much here from an historical viewpoint or sociological viewpoint, though some observations from that side certainly can be in order. First thing I'd like to do is try to sort a few things out. Philosophers try to do that, try to, try to distinguish, try to clarify the field, first of all, of what we're thinking about. I think that in significant ways, what is called toxic masculinity is in fact just that, a distorted view or practice of masculinity that has very negative consequences. Consider, if you will, my first quotations just from Wikipedia on toxic masculinity. Check this out. The concept of toxic masculinity is used in academic and media discussions to refer to those aspects of hegemonic masculinity that are socially destructive, such as misogyny, hatred of women, homophobia, I think we know what homophobia means, and violent domination. These traits are considered toxic due in part to their promotion of violence, including sexual assault and domestic violence. Socialization of boys sometimes also normalizes violence, such as in the saying, boys will be boys, about bullying and aggression. So for starters, I think for sure, some of the things in there, in any case, that are referred to as problematic are obviously problematic. And they're also obviously associated with masculinity. So I begin by noting there, there's no doubt in my mind that what is referred to as toxic masculinity, some of the things that are referred to as toxic masculinity are precisely exceedingly 
negative, destructive manifestation of something that many consider to be masculine. And that needs to be reckoned with. Further, it seems that toxic masculinity approach does not condemn masculinity itself. In other words, it leaves open that there can be a good sense of masculinity. Consider the second quotation from the same source. In the social sciences, toxic masculinity refers to traditional cultural masculine norms that can be harmful to men, women, and society overall. This concept of toxic masculinity does not condemn men or male attributes, but rather emphasizes the harmful effects of conformity to certain, certain traditional masculine ideal behaviors, such as dominance, self-reliance, and competition. All right. So now things are starting to get a little bit more dicey. But, but for starters, here I just also want to note, it seems that what's called toxic masculinity is at least not seeking to condemn masculinity as such. I'm just going to recognize that there's something that corresponds to masculinity that would be perhaps natural, normal, acceptable but it's seeking to look at certain manifestations of masculinity and condemn them. But, of course, the key that starts to arise here is when you see the list of these things that are, are being noted as problematic, one just starts to say, okay, well, exactly who is characterizing? How are we going to characterize these purportedly negative characteristics? Some are going to be obviously so, right? I mean, something like you know, violence is obviously going to be something that's negative. But then you get into something like well, self-reliance, competition, even the term dominance. We'll come back to that and we'll look at that a little bit more. But it seems to me, my next assertion to you is I think that the toxic masculinity approach can tend toward seeing masculinity itself as toxic. Though it just asserted that it's not doing that, I think that it does tend toward seeing masculinity itself as toxic. Why? Truly negative characteristics are too easily conflated, especially today, with masculine characteristics that are real masculine characteristics and are not negative. But if these negative characteristics are too easily conflated, confused with masculinity itself, then I think very often this approach ends up having the effect in common thinking, hey, toxic masculinity isn't so much just certain manifestations of masculinity, it's, it's many of them. Or perhaps it would be a little bit more subtle like this, that masculinity itself tends toward toxicness or toxicity. Not that it has to do that, but that 
anytime you have men thinking in terms of kind of promoting and cultivating their masculinity, this is going to tend to go in a negative direction. So very often, I think, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. We find ourselves today in a situation where many are unable to distinguish between what is toxic and what is not. And so masculinity itself is often conflated, confused with what is definitively a counterfeit or a perversion of real masculinity. Or put otherwise, people often see masculinity itself as intrinsically leading towards its common perversions. But I think the reality is more like this. Given the true nature of masculinity, which does demand very much of men, there are common failures or perversions that distort all of our experience of masculinity. Again, I think this is closer to the reality. Given what real masculinity is, and frankly, how difficult it is to do it right, how much it demands of men, failure is common. And so it makes sense, it, or in the case it's understandable, that we, when we think of masculinity, what we think of are the common failures that we've seen. So I begin with what is perhaps an obvious starting point. The failure of husbands and fathers plays a very large part in this confusion. Any way you slice it, the failure of men to be men will be a significant cause in the distortion in undermining of our common view of masculinity. And I think that responsibility, while it certainly does not explain the whole phenomenon of toxic masculinity, it is absolutely critical to notice that. <clears throat> Let's take a look, if you will, at the third quotation here, reading St. Thomas Aquinas' little treatise on kingship. He makes the following a comment which really jumped out at me and I think says something very important for our topic at hand. He says, because both the best and the worst governments are latent in monarchy, that is, in the rule of one man, the royal dignity, and what he means by the royal dignity is the dignity of that form of government altogether, the royal dignity is rendered hateful to, pe to many people on accounts of the wickedness of tyrants. This jumped out at me as it seems you can say the exact same thing about manhood, about fatherhood. If you will, I'll just change his statement a little bit. Because both the best and the worst of kind of uh, fatherliness or manliness are latent in fatherhood, or we can say husbandhood and fatherhood, the paternal dignity, 
is rendered hateful to many people on account of the wickedness of fathers. Obviously, this isn't saying all. But I, I, it, to think about this, I think it's very important to, for us to think in terms of what if it's the case that the majority of people don't have real images, they don't have real, real life experience of men who are men, then are we surprised that there is a fundamental misperception of what it means to be a man. If we don't see it, what would make us think that this is how men naturally are to be? For I note a very Aristotelian principle, you know a thing most of all from its flourishing state. You don't know apple trees, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen an apple tree flourishing. You don't know what it is to be a man until you have seen a man. So there's no wonder that our age wonders aloud what is this masculinity thing is it a good? Is it something to be cultivated? I approach with this conviction that we have a very big problem because of a lack of understanding and a lack of practice of real manhood. And so I turn here to St. Thomas Aquinas to help us think more clearly about masculinity. And I pray to the Lord then also to do more in cultivating its actualization. I have four points to share from Aquinas. The first is an obvious kind of general point about human life, but one that has to be noted. Then I'm going to share three points from Aquinas' thought about men and their role in marriage and household. So our first point, a kind of general one, which includes a couple points in it, and really adumbrates, foreshadows my whole conclusion. There's an objective moral order. It's discoverable. It's essential to human happiness. As Aristotle saw so clearly, the only satisfied, the only truly happy human person is one who is living according to certain objective standards of human nature, of what real human flourishing is. There's an objective and knowable standard and something further, that standard calls for a profound cultivation. It absolutely requires a profound cultivation, especially starting in the household. In other words, what it means to really live, to really live a human life, demands so much of all of us that it calls for a certain kind of formation, a certain kind of formation that nature intended, that nature sets forth, which is why nature sets forth something utterly astounding, never could have been made up 
It's called marriage and family and household because it's what being human demands. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the background. There is a key connection between our rejection today of a natural moral order on the one hand and our rejection and misunderstanding of masculinity on the other. These two things always go hand in hand. Show me a culture that doesn't hold objective high standards of moral goodness, of moral character, and that society will not honor and practice true manliness. Why? Here's really my main assertion. And it's the heart of what nature tells us about what it is to be a man. The central feature of masculinity is precisely to take the lead in enacting the moral order. That is the essence of masculinity. A person that is called to, in some significant way, take the lead in enacting, in actualizing, in cultivating human flourishing in the most important sense of human flourishing. To be a man is to be a craftsman. A craftsman of what? A craftsman of real human flourishing. Any other crafting that a man ever does utterly pales in comparison to the defining call in his life to be a crafter, to take the lead in forming, cultivating human goodness. That's what men do. But if we don't think that there is an objective and high standard of doing that, that then what is a man to do? What Aquinas called paternal discipline, beautiful term, rightly understood. Paternal discipline is a rich term that he uses to name the whole realm of something that, first of all, the man takes the lead in and absolutely is a shared and common project in marriage between a husband and a wife. St. Thomas calls it paternal discipline. That names the centerpiece of what a man does in the home. And again, no objective moral order that requires formation in the home. You've removed the essential calling of masculinity. I say further, undermine paternal authority in the home and you undermine the human good, always, everywhere, full stop. Having laid out a full foundation here, the rest of my plan is simple. We're going to look very briefly at three features of a man's place in marriage through the eyes of St. Thomas. So let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to do each of these briefly. I have a quotation connected to each.
First of my three, man naturally initiates in various ways in the marriage context. This is a key feature of understanding masculinity, that man is one who naturally initiates. Another way of saying that in common parlance is takes the lead. Give me a couple quick examples I think are very important, very illustrative. For example, in proposing marriage. Another example, in provisioning the marriage and the household. Another example, in defending the marriage and the household. Final example, in forming children in the marriage, in the household. A man takes the lead. He initiates in all those areas. And, 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 and what I'm going to do right now is kind of call to the witness stand, just giving you an image. It's a little bit dangerous for me to do this because I'm, I'll put it to you this way. In my saying these images to you, I'm expecting, I'm hoping that your interior experience on hearing this image is immediately going to kind of go, yep, I see the point. What do we do when it comes to the point when I give these images and someone I'm speaking to says, what's wrong with that? That's an exceedingly challenging situation. And if that's the way it is for someone in the room tonight, well, here we are. Let's work on that together. I'm going to present you a couple of very quick images as regards each of those. Um, picture, if you will, for a moment, the man who is waiting for a woman to ask him to marry her. End of image. Picture, if you will, the man who says to his wife, we don't have anything to eat, dear. What are you going to do about that? Picture the man who says, dear, the bad guys are coming for our children. What are you going to do about that? Final image, the man who says, our, our teenagers have an identity crisis and they're running wild. Dear, what are you going to do about that, baby? I'm suggesting for your consideration that there's something natural that men can see, that women can see, that a man naturally initiates in these very important ways. I simply give you quotation number four from Genesis. St. Thomas likes scripture, so that means he agrees with it. All right? Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. A man leaves his father and his mother. I grant a woman leaves his, her father and mother too. But she leaves her father and mother because the man left his father and mother and says to her, will you please join me? Point number two, man takes first responsibility for discerning and actualizing human flourishing in marriage and parenting. Man takes first responsibility. Another way of saying that is I could say he has first authority for discerning 
in actualizing human flourishing in marriage and parenting. This is the thing to which I was just referring. This is the master craft. This is what's most defining. And I say it again, ladies and gentlemen, when a man, in any case, you, what, you, what you see, we always will see masculinity, first of all, most obviously in marriage and household. There are other vocations, especially in the church, where this true masculinity comes out. But the way that we discover it naturally is by considering it in the context of a household. So I give you a man who at the end of his life, what does he know? He wants to, looking back, what has he most done? It's what he's done, especially for his wife and for his children, in empowering them and helping them and serving them to become all they're designed to be. I give you quotation number five. This is from St. Thomas's commentary on St. Paul of the Ephesians. But a husband treats his wife and children in reference to the common good. Thus he, St. Paul, mentions as to a lord. The husband is not really a lord, but is as a lord. This is St. Thomas deftly commenting on St. Paul saying, let women be subject to the husbands as to their lord. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a lecture on the delicate, rich, and profoundly beautiful reality of authority and exactly what it means and exactly how it functions. But I just present to you something that in St. Thomas's mind was clear, and it seems in St. Paul's mind was clear, is that a husband has a unique kind of authority in the household. But something that is so critical it sounds so abstract here when in that first sentence it says, but a husband treats his wife and children in reference to the common good. Another way simply saying that is his authority is for no other end but their good. Any use of a man's authority that wouldn't ever in any way ever be self-serving is immediately a perversion of the first order and will have dramatic consequences in his relationship with his wife, in his relationship with his children. Children have a very sensitive meter to if their father seems to be correcting them, bearing down on them because it's simply frustrating to him right now, or this isn't what he wanted, or happens to not be convenient for him, that is immediately, naturally experienced as deeply problematic. Why? Because nature demands. This is the archetype of a person who would take the role of authority as being an exercise of love for them. But it is real authority. And so there is a kind of lordship. And all that means is a real kind of authority there. Again, can't go into all the details of that. I'm on my third and final one. A man sees the difference between himself and his wife. And he recognizes therein a natural plan that he encourages, that he purifies, 
that he cherishes. It's a man especially that has to notice, and this is, and this, there's so much that could be said here, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes, and those of you who are married will know what I'm saying, sometimes it almost seems like it was too hard to do, almost as though such a word has been said in my own household. Did God just set this up for failure? Interestingly, because often it seems that women are more tuned to the difference between men and women than men are. But it's absolutely critical that a man see it. A real man must and does notice the difference and study it seek to appreciate it, cultivate it, cherish it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you a quotation here, number six from St. Thomas. It's very simple, very, very simple. It, often, St. Thomas didn't say much about these things because, frankly, in his culture, much of this wasn't perfect but much was taken for granted. So it doesn't have long treatises on the difference between men and women. In any case, since the male does not later become a female, nor the female a male, rather, they always remain the same. In other words, in their natural differences, and that's in the context of pointing to how they each have their own role. Right? Similarly there, but the same virtue does not belong to men and women. There's a, the, even the very important thing of human virtue, it's cultivated and expressed differently between men and women. But check out quotation number seven. This interesting thing called sexism, which obviously is very much related to toxic masculinity. Give you another a, a quickie from Wikipedia on sexism. Sexism is prejudice or discrimination based on one's sex or gender. Sexism can affect anyone, but it primarily affects women and girls. According to Richard Schaefer, sexism is perpetuated by all major social institutions. I'd like to suggest for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen, our lack of clear thinking here is fatal for the relationships that are most important in our life. We've got to figure this one out. Here, I suggest that it seems that it is being called sexism simply to have some type of, all pre, the word prejudice simply means having a prejudgment. So I'd like to, as I started out earlier, just making some distinctions, I want to do the same thing right here as regards sexism. It seems to me we need to make a very important distinction. On the one side, we have negative a negative sense of prejudice, making a prejudgment. It seems to me here's two ways that sexism can indeed refer to something very bad. A negative sense of having a prejudgment about the difference between men and women. What are two ways I think that can happen? Just misattribute what the differences are. You can have a very bad sense of sexism if there is a prejudgment about the differences that's very wrong. So, for instance, if there's just a prejudgment 
that, that has a blanket statement about women are weak, and meaning that weakness in a, a kind of across-the-board kind of way, right? There's toxic masculinity. There's a sexism with a bad prejudgment about women. So all kinds of wrong judgments that could be made about the difference between man and woman. That would be a bad sense of sexism. Another sense, it seems to me, of sexism that should be censured, in other words, a truly bad sense of sexism, is when a man looks down on a woman because of the difference. Now that doesn't necessarily mean he even mischaracterized what the difference is. Maybe he's seeing something true about what the difference is, but then he belittles her for that. That is a seriously negative sexism, a, a wrong prejudgment about the significance of the difference between men and women. But then I simply distinguish those two forms on the one hand from something different. What every man and woman who are going to get married especially have got to do, namely, to discover the truth and the beauty in the design of their difference. And if that is called sexism, then St. Thomas Aquinas is a sexist, and I am a sexist. If you simply mean that you have absolute confidence there is a real, enduring difference that has real significance for how men and women interact, especially in that primordial relationships, in their spousal relationship, and in their parenting. And so again, at this third level here, I simply say, yes, men discover that difference they cherish that difference, and I suggest for your consideration, show me a man who has seen the truth of the difference between himself and his wife. And maybe through a lot of having made mistakes and having fallen and having to ask for forgiveness comes to the point where he now really cherishes it. And by taking the lead in the various ways that he's called to do, empowers her and gives her a safe and cherished place to be feminine and to be a mother. I'll show you a man and a woman who are very happy. I suggest. In conclusion, I'd like to just note a couple features very quickly of the masculine vocation in marriage from the theological viewpoint. A couple quick quotations here. Number eight, St. Paul states, husbands love your wives. <laughs> you know, it's so easy just to kind of zoom over that one right there. Interestingly, I don't have to go into it, St. Paul doesn't say wives love your husbands. But he says, husbands, 
love your wives. Obviously, it's not that he doesn't want the wives to love their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. St. Thomas goes on his commentary, for certainly it is from the love he has for his wife that he will live more chastely, and both of them will enjoy a peaceful relationship. I simply, it, I find it so fascinating that St. Thomas in his wisdom, the things he says about marriage, they're, it's not, they're not common, they're not a lot, but when he does, you just, somehow that man saw, you don't have to be married to understand marriage. St. Thomas shows us that. Part of the masculine vocation, always and everywhere, is chastity. And if we're going to address our topic for today, I say this to you as regards the age in which we live. An age where chastity is not cherished and promoted can never understand what it is to be a man. Because it's at the center of empowering a man to be a man. This is obvious. We don't have to linger. Every man in the room knows right now, and we all fall in various and sundry ways, right? But to the extent that we do fall in the whole area of chastity, it always undermines our ability to love. That's what St. Thomas saw, and that's why in unfolding the vocation of a husband in the command of St. Paul to love your wife, he says, yes, from the love he has for his wife, if for no other reason, he cultivates chastity. Number nine, quotation nine, husbands love your wives as Christ also loves the church and delivered himself up for it. St. Thomas goes, that was, that's Ephesians 5.25. St. Thomas goes on, St. Paul draws the conclusion he attended, intended by affirming, so also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Ladies and gentlemen, we just focus for a moment. St. Thomas, with a theological vision, talk about the epicenter of understanding masculinity, a man being called to love his wife the way that Christ loves the church. Christ, the ultimate man, a husband imitating his love, Christ's love. There's the vocation. There it is. And again, in view of the Aristotelian principle from earlier, you know a thing from its flourishing. Show me the man who's striving to live his Christian vocation, to love as Christ does, to be able to reveal to the world a sign, a sacrament, as St. Paul says, of Christ's love and fidelity for the church. It's so jaw-dropping that this is what a man is called to do, to be a concrete, daily, visible sign to anyone who has eyes to see. See how I love my wife? See how I cherish my wife? See how I'm chased for my wife? See how I render everything unto her and will always do so. That Christ designs, this is no accident, to be a daily witness to anyone with eyes to see, that's how I love. 
So loving as Christ loved the church, this is the full perfection, this is the full manifestation of masculinity. This is our goal, and it's anything but toxic. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.